At our annual general meeting of the members of the congregation in February, I had my associate pastor James draw up what we, this one sheet of paper with all this information on it. But these are all the numbers that makes all of you bring joy into my life. Like we had 20 baptisms in 2022. 30 people became members of the church besides that number. 125 new attendees in 2022. 173 serving roles are being filled. Our budget was preceded by $33,000. We had visits from five different missions that we support during the year. Pizza with the pastor, which you'll hear about a little later. There were 70 people that attended that. And it only started again in September because we were shut down due to COVID. The new partnership class had 60 people attending it. So, and then we had over 80 kids in vacation Bible school. So these are all ways that you bring joy into my life. But there's one way that you can't bring joy, and that is through the sport of hockey. But the Toronto Maple Leafs won the first round in the playoffs last night, the first time in 19 years that they've actually won the first round of the playoffs. So that brought a joy that you guys can't give to myself, or even James, our associate pastor. He's a long-suffering fan as well. But we're beginning a new series of messages today, and it's based on the book of First John. And John is a, a really neat book because it's filled with reminders for longtime Christians. So there's some deep theology in there that they can really get into. But it's also a great introduction to the Christian life. So for people that are either relatively new to the faith or maybe not yet a Christ follower, there is a lot in that book as well. So this is a great book for us to study no matter where you are along your faith journey. And the book was written by John. He was one of the 12 disciples. And if we look at other parts of the Gospels, we find out that he was actually the closest to Jesus. And if you see that painting of Da Vinci's Last Supper, Jesus is the one seated in the center, and to his right is John. So that's how close they were. And he's the only disciple that's still living at the time in which he writes this book. And he's writing the book to some longtime Christians who are undergoing intense persecution. And his desire is to encourage them to hang in there, to remind them that Jesus is worth living for. And he's better than anything else this world has to offer. But then he's also writing to new Christians who are trying to figure out this Christian faith as well. And John is writing as a very wise and aging pastor. And in this book, he refers to his readers as dear children. And there are only five short chapters in the book. And on a dozen occasions, he refers to them with that term. So he's actually kind of like the spiritual father. And it seems as if they were people that he knew that he was writing to. He had probably led many of them to the Lord. He had probably discipled many of them. And so he's just coming back to them to share some encouragement in the faith that they have accepted. But they were, just like his children, 
but they were really God's children. And I'm God's child, and you're God's child. We're all his children. And one of the most important things in the life of any child and their parents is when that child learns to walk. I'll greet parents going out the door, and they'll be carrying their infant. And then all of a sudden, one Sunday, little Johnny's on his own feet, and he's not very steady, but he's waddling out the door, and they're holding his hand. So things change. Children start to grow. My oldest daughter, Brittany, I wanted to be able to brag about having the child that started to walk at the youngest age. So I worked with her, and I worked with her. And at seven months old, I had Brittany walking. And, and she was, that was really the beginning of her destiny for athletic greatness. She could skate on ice at the age of two and a half, skate really well. And then we moved to Halifax that summer, and I never got her on the ice again for three years, and she forgot what it was. And I had blown her chance at the Women's Olympic Hockey <laughs> Championships. But I realized this was a mistake, getting her walking so early, because she got into so much trouble. So with our other daughters, with Shannon, she was 11 months before she started keeping up to her sister. But Ainsley, the youngest, she just sat there on her bottom and the others waited on her. She was 15 months old before she started walking. But it didn't slow her down any because at her wedding I mentioned how she was the most beautiful, she was the most athletic, she could run the fastest. And then I got in trouble from the other two. Oh, why is she the fastest? And I said, well, if you remember, at your weddings, I said that you were the most beautiful, the most talented. And, but they seemed to forget that. But watching a child learn to walk is so neat because it actually mirrors our Christian life. We walk kind of funny at the start, and we aren't really certain of ourselves. But if that child is still waddling like this at the age of 25, then something is wrong. And the things we do when we're a child in the Lord and starting in that process are going to be very different from the way we act as we mature in the faith. And all the way through the Bible... A metaphor of walking is used, and it's tying in with us following God. And 1 John is a perfect example of that. So in verses 5 and 6, John said, Here is the message we have heard from Christ and now announce to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with God, but we continue living, other translations say walking in darkness, we are liars and do not follow the truth. Now, there was a lukewarm Christian who spoke to his older pastor on the way out the door one day, and he said, you know, you speak of how Satan will tempt us constantly and he'll try to get us to engage in immoral and, uh, and actually unethical choices. But I've got to tell you something, pastor. The, the devil never seems to bother me. It's like he's not even there. And that old pastor just thought for a moment, and then he said, two people walking down the same road in the same direction aren't going to bump into one another very often. And that's so true. If we're walking in Satan's road, then we're not going to bump into him. He's not going to be a problem to us. 1 John 1.7 says, but if we live in the light 
As God is in the light, we can share fellowship with each other. Then the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from every sin. So that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about walking in the light, living in the light. And then John 8, verse 12. Later, Jesus talked to the people again, saying, I am the light of the world. The person who follows me will never live in darkness, but will have the light that gives life. So when we walk with Jesus, we don't sin because Jesus came to save us from sin, to free us. Sin is no longer in control of our lives. After her baptism, one woman said, it's forgiven. And she never said what it was. And, but it didn't really matter because it's forgiven. And we all have an it's. We all have those things that need to be forgiven. And God, in his wisdom, knew that. And that's why he sent Jesus to the earth. And, and that's why the angel said, you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. So is it possible to walk completely in the light and never sin? And, of course, the answer is no. That's why God came in the flesh to this earth. And as every child learns to walk, they're going to fall, and that's going to happen to us. There are three verses I want to read in quick succession here. Romans 3.10 reminds us, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. And then Romans 3.23 for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And I like the phrasing there, God's glorious standard. His standard is here. It's perfection. And then 623, the payment for sin is death. But God gives us the free gift of life forever in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, we're going to sin, but we walk through those baby steps as we see here in 1 John. And when we begin to realize that it opens a door for us and we begin to realize that the older and more mature we become, our walk changes and we become better. So let's begin by looking at your first steps. At some point, you have to get moving. Our daughter, Brittany, if she was going to walk, she had to just, at some point, take that risk and walk toward me or she'd never learn to walk. And you have to stop standing and start moving. You can never learn to walk by lying on the sofa. You learn to walk by walking. So how do we start moving? The starting point is admitting that we're sinners. So in, in verse 8, John said, If we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins because we can trust God to do what is right. He will cleanse us from all the wrongs we have done. And if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and we do not accept God's teaching. When a little child starts to walk, sometimes a parent, maybe a grandparent, will phone somebody and they'll say, she took three steps today, she took four steps today. And when you see a new Christian start off strong, everybody is excited. And they say, this is terrific. But it's just a matter of time before they fall. They're going to sin. Of course they will. And it's not surprising because they're only children in the faith. They can't do it all by themselves. 
So has that ever been you? You started off strong, only to discover that no matter how confident you were or how promising you thought it was, you just didn't make it. Maybe you had a plan to get out of overdraft debt, and you had a six-month plan, and it was right on schedule. But then you noticed this big-ticket item that you felt the family needed, and you used a credit card to buy that, and then you ended up back in the exact same situation. You, you fell. Maybe you've been in a rebuilding project, and your project is your marriage. Or maybe you're trying to rebuild a relationship with somebody else. Or maybe you're trying to share your faith with someone. And you took those first baby steps in the rebuilding process only to discover that those rocks and those blocks are, are so heavy and sometimes too heavy to carry. And your rebuilding project just comes crashing down around you. And and you, before you get the chance to finish it, you fall. A key thing is to learn that first steps are often followed closely by the first fall. Now, the mistakes a new Christian makes should be very different from those of a longtime Christian. And that happens because in the process of walking with Jesus, we get to the point where we're admitting to him, I can't do this on my own, Lord. I need you. So it's a child moving from our oldest daughter, Brittany. It was always me do, me do. She could always do it herself. So it's, it's moving beyond that to the point of saying, God, I need you to help me do this. Years ago, there was a popular book titled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. So I'll try not to confuse you in this. So the title of the book is, I'm Okay, You're Okay. And the book said that there are four different ways you could look at your life. You could say, I'm okay, you're okay, the premise of the book. Or, I'm okay, but you're not okay. Or, I'm not okay, but you're okay. And then the last one they offered was, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. Now, it's kind of confusing to share to a group, but the premise is, Supposedly, I'm okay and you're okay, but the New Testament teaches I'm not okay, you're not okay, but because of Jesus Christ, that's okay, because he came to make the difference. Our passage says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins, because we can trust God to do what is right, and he will then cleanse us for all the wrongs that we've done. But it starts by admitting your need because you're going to fall at some point. But you can't stay on your backside. You need to get back up again. So why or how do we do that? So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this letter to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a helper in the presence of of the Father, Jesus Christ, the one who does what is right. He died in our place to take away our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the people. So how do you respond after you fall? The question is, will you get back up? Once we've turned on the light so that the darkness of sin is exposed, we keep moving in the direction of that light. We are drawn toward it. And everything we do is to help other people 
follow Jesus as well. But we want to follow that light. And as a church, we've bought into that. Out in the cafe, above the coffee counter, you will see our mission statement. And on there, we have said that everything we do is to help people follow Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus, and to faithfully actually join the mission of Jesus. So that's what we want our congregation to do. And just like a small child has to learn not to touch that hot stove or that hot oven, we need to take those baby steps away from sin rather than getting closer to it. We need to realize that Jesus can forgive. But sometimes new Christians will make a mistake. They sin and they think, oh, th- this is a big one. And they have this guilt feeling that then makes them actually stay away from fellowship with other Christians. They think that God's not going to forgive that sin. But they need to realize that the reason Jesus came in the first place was to offer us that series of second chances where God just keeps us inviting us back to him over and over again. Just think about being a physical parent. You raise your children to make wise decisions, and when they make a wrong decision, you don't say, oh no, that's the big one. That's going to get you kicked out of the family. Sorry. But that's not what takes place. They made a mistake. We teach them, and then we help them to grow from that. Chuck Swindle put it this way, and we have this on a slide. He said, stumblers, who when they fall down, stay down, are a dime a dozen. In fact, they're useless. But stumblers, who when they fall down, get back up. They're as rare as rubies. In fact, they're priceless. So be one of those people that gets back up when you fall. So look at 1 John 2, 2 again. He died in our place to take away our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all people. So Christ's sacrificial death wasn't just for our sins, but for the sins of the people in the whole world. He's a personal Savior for each one of us, but he's also a big Savior in that he's there for the whole world. Back when I was an adolescent, early teen, I would attend our Nicholson family gatherings. The adults would play Chinese checkers, and they started to let me play. And I wasn't that great at it, so I always lost. And I had an aunt that won every time. And then she starts to pick on me because I'm losing. So I'm thinking, okay, if I'm not going to win, she's not going to win either. And I don't know if you know the game, but you're moving your marbles from your home base to this other base that somebody has to vacate to let you in. So I just planted one of my marbles in that base that she was going toward, knowing she's not going to win if I'm not going to win. Misery loves company. And you know something? That's the same thing that Satan does. He tried to do a hostile takeover in heaven, and that failed. He lost, and he was evicted from heaven, and he is now doomed to a Christless eternity in hell forever and ever. So he says, if I'm not going to go to heaven, then she isn't going to go to heaven. They're not going to go either. And he uses every possible means to just kind of bring you down with him because misery loves company. So the devil has his sights set 
on your marriage. He has schemed to make your workplace a miserable place to be. He delights in tragedies and misfortunes. He dreams of getting you to just play church instead of being a fully devoted follower of Christ with a genuine relationship with Jesus. He wants more than anything else for you to just kind of cave in under the pressure to walk by the flesh instead of walking by the Spirit. So are you getting back up again after you fall? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, And stay away from everything that is evil. But we have a hard time with this because we'd much rather try to get as close to sin as we possibly can rather than avoiding it. In the past 10 to 11 months, 24 of you in our church have made a bold step of faith and been baptized into Christ. And I'd love to see the enthusiasm on all of your faces as you're committing your lives to the Lord. Years ago, there was a woman that she started to attend church. She was kind of skeptical about Christianity. And I talked she and her husband into doing a Bible study together. And we met one week. And then that following Sunday, the church had a picnic that they attended. And there was a group of us gathered together. And she said, there's no way you're going to get me up in front of a group of people with all my clothes on and dunk me in a tank of water. And so I thought the problem was all her clothes on. So I said, well, you don't have to wear your clothes and we can baptize you. But that woman, she went home. The material I gave them was supposed to last probably two months of visits from myself. But she worked through it all. She read all the scriptures. And that next Sunday morning, as we were singing this song after my sermon, she just came running to the front, wanting to give her life to the Lord and be baptized into him. So there is enthusiasm there when someone gives their life to the Lord. And a part of that is repentance. And repentance is a 180-degree turn in your life. And that's what people who commit their lives to the Lord are buying into. They verbalize their faith by answering, yes, I want to become a part of God's family. So all of you that have given your lives to Christ in that past 10, 11 months, you answered yes or I do to these questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? Do you accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? And do you repent of the sin in your life? And do you promise to follow him the rest of your life? That's the confession that you all made. And that's why the closing prayer in the book of Jude says, Only God can keep you from falling and make you pure and joyful in his glorious presence. So we keep coming back to that over and over again, the fact that Jesus can help us stand. Maybe you say, wait now, didn't you just say that everybody sins? And that's right. We sin when we don't rely upon him and we don't trust in his spirit. And we don't trust him and obey him when he basically lays something on our hearts. James said, so give yourselves completely to God. Stand against the devil and the devil will run from you. Come near to God and God will come near to you. You sinners, clean sin out of your lives. You who are trying to follow God and the world at the same time. 
Make your thinking pure. But when you repent, you kind of stand back up, you start over again, which leads to that third area, which is to walk again. It's to just keep on walking. And that third verse, John said, we can be sure that we know God if we obey his commands. So if you're the parent of an infant and you're trying to teach and train your child, one of the most important things is to get first-time obedience from your child. And I know it's too much to expect at the start, but it's something that we keep working on. It won't happen right away, but it will happen over time. It's that level of expectation you always have. So you have to be certain to say, I'm expecting you to do this. And there's a consequence if you choose not to. Because if you don't do that, we end up with exhausted parents because they're constantly having to repeat, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. What you want is first-time obedience, just like when we respond to God, when he lays something on our hearts. He wants us to have first-time obedience. Years ago, I was visiting a family that I was trying to encourage to attend church. And their three-year-old daughter jumped up on the table, kitchen table, and starts dancing. I'm thinking, okay. And the mother said, get down. And the daughter never listened to her. She just continued dancing. And then the mother turned the heat up a little bit. And she said, okay, I'm going to give you a timeout. But that wasn't powerful enough. The girl keeps on dancing. And then finally, the mother says, okay, I'm going to count to 10. And I'm thinking, by the time you count to 10, this kid will be out and rob a bank and back again. But she starts counting. One, two, not count to three like most parents do. Four, and she gets to nine, and then nine and a half, and then the girl gets off the table. And she knew that even when her mother got to nine, she still had some grace in there that she would extend. So she's teaching her child that parental authority means nothing. There's no reason for this child to respect her. And isn't that child also going to think, okay, if that's what it's like with my earthly parent, then is that how it is with our heavenly father? Is he going to act the very same way? And so they end up not respecting him. And as a result, the child will not be responsive because God's love language is obedience. John 14, 15 said, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And something is missing within the church if there is no obedience. Because when we obey, God kind of sits up and he takes notice and he says, You know what? These people, they, they must love me because they are obeying me. And then the last two verses in this scripture, anyone who says, I know God, but does not obey God's commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if someone obeys God's teaching, then in that person, God's love has truly reached its goal. 
This is how we can be sure we are living in God. See, that's amazing. Like, when was the last time that a friend or acquaintance looked at you and they saw a glimpse of Jesus in the way that you loved? We can't simply stay in our own safe and secure setting. A Christian life is to be lived in the world. And if we seclude ourselves from the world, then that's just a cop-out from what Christ told us to do in Matthew 28, which was to go into the world and to make disciples and to teach them and to baptize them and then to teach them so they could do the same with others. So that's impossible to do if we aren't rubbing our shoulders and doing life with lost people in our society. What's the purpose of the church if the world looks the same as the church? So I'm going to conclude my message by sharing that there's a difference between the way that you want to teach your child to walk and the way that God wants to teach you to walk. When you're teaching a child to walk, you want that child to get to the point where they're independent. You don't want them to be 16 years of age and you're still walking, holding their hand, taking them to school because they're unsteady. Or you don't want to look at a set of stairs and, oh no, my 23-year-old, they might fall down those stairs. We want to be getting to the point where they walk on their own. That's how we do it. But when it comes to God, it, he does it totally differently. He doesn't want you to be independent of him. He actually wants you to become more and more dependent upon him. He wants the goal to be the fact that we want our Father beside us all the time, that we need Christ, that we need God the Father in our lives, that we need God the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what that is saying is we're not independent. We're actually becoming more and more dependent upon God. We're saying, Lord, I need you in my life. Now, if you hold his hand, whether you're a longtime Christian or a baby Christian, you are going to be taken on a journey. And it's a journey with ups and downs. And as long as you're holding his hand, it's going to be an amazing walk. And at some point in that journey, he is going to take you to a cross and he will show you his sacrifice and his love. And perhaps you'll say, I need you in my life. We give you the opportunity and the invitation to respond, to walk in the light with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It's actually more of an admission that you aren't perfect and that you need help because you can't do this on your own. But come, talk to me. Or you want to be like that woman, just run to the front and we can have a conversation.